It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please be upstanding for your carnivore, Tristan Haggard. What's up, guys? Really nice to meet you, Laban. It's great to be on here. Um, appreciate you uh, inviting me on, man. It's good to meet you. Well, Tristan, welcome to the Become Your Own Superhero podcast. You're a fascinating, fascinating gentleman. And if you had to describe Tristan Haggard to someone in 30 seconds, how would you do it? Oh, man, I'm the last person who should do that. Um, I, I mean, I think, uh, I guess what, what we do, uh, we've run a website, we do coaching. Uh, we've been teaching people how to implement low carbohydrate, animal-based diet for I think about six years now I've been running our YouTube channel and uh, we do coaching. We have our uh, online coaching forum. We have an online private forum that we do. I'm also an advocate for small family farms, for homesteading. Um, and I'm an uh, animal eating rights activist. I'll say that. And where, whereabouts are you based, Tristan? Where do you guys live? Uh, we're based out of Ecuador. We're actually, we're in the south of Ecuador. We're about a few hours north of Peru up here, about 5,000 feet in the Andes. Is that anywhere near where that plane crashed and the, the rugby players had to resort to cannibalism? Do you remember the movie mm-hmm. Alive? It was in- I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I, I have to check. I'm not very familiar with exactly where that happened. Was that in Peru or was that in Ecuador? Uh, no, I think it might have been. It was in the Andes somewhere. And I think a- it was probably in Argentina. I think it was further yeah, south. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh and they I think it might have been in the in the seventies or or eighties and they yeah, they survived by resorting to cannibalism. And there's a fascinating movie and book that came out as a result. So yeah, that's about what I know. I'm a big about advocate of cannibalism. Huge and no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's I mean but, but we've uh we've recently We've recently stopped that practice here in this part of the Andes, but there may be other parts of the Andes where it's still rampant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we can talk about that on the next on the next interview. But in terms of your background, Tristan, and you know, you live there with your wife and your kids. You're, and I've seen some of the footage. You know, like it's it's a pretty extraordinary, looks pretty remote, very self sustained type of lifestyle. What made you end up there? I mean, when we left California in 2000, uh, what was it, 2010, we came down here. One of the big things we were looking for was a place where we could produce a lot of our own food, right, affordably. Um, so I think, uh, you know, the affordability of food, the ability for us to procure good quality local foods, that was a big part of it. Um, good, clean air, clean water. So there's all, all some of the factors that uh, came into play with choosing to live where we live. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, geographically it just, it works for us as far as the culture goes. We really enjoy that here as well. And, um, you know, I mean, we, in California, we left in 2010, food was really expensive and it's only gotten worse there since, uh, we used to go to the farmer's market and spend, I mean, we spent most of our paychecks that were most of the money that we were making, we would spend on food back there. And I don't think, you know, I think, Good, good food is hard to come by in a lot of places and good food is not cheap, right? I think quality is very, very important when we're looking at food. When we look at the soil quality that it's grown in, that soil, you know, the food quality is just a proxy measurement of the quality of your soil, right? We've had civilizations rise and fall due to, you know, soil erosion and soil destruction. So I think a big part of it was coming somewhere where we felt like we might be able to, um, 
you know, have, have our own little piece of soil and try to extract the fathom land from it and live off of that. And like so many people that have gone down this health journey of adopting an animal protein focused lifestyle, I'm assuming that you went through your own health challenges to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I grew up with asthma. Um, I've always had seasonal allergies. No matter what I've been able to know, no matter what I've done as far as, uh, you know, health and uh, diet goes, seasonal allergies still come back. You know, we get some grasses, we've got some grasses blooming outside right now, these red grasses. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I grew up with many kind of immune, uh, autoimmune type responses to environments. Um, yeah, I yeah, ended up getting very sensitive to certain foods and not even realizing that I was getting inflammatory reactions to food. And through trying to kind of take back my health after a major injury that I got um, skating, I realized that food could be used to accelerate the healing process, to improve the immune function and the central nervous system. And as a, uh, you know, as a way of just generally feeling better, you know, I really, never really looked at food as medicine growing up. I grew up on cereal, breakfast cereal and pastries and, um, you know, just Costco, Costco junk food, basically like most kids in California. So then realizing that food was such an important part of health, it really opened up my mind and it really kind of changed the, uh, my whole the, the paradigm of how to manage my health. Right. So it's like, I went from always having to have an inhaler with me everywhere I went as a kid, you know I mean? When I played sports, like I would you know, go play soccer, or baseball, I'd always have to make sure it was in my backpack or in my bag. Uh, or, you know, even if I didn't need it, I would get a little bit anxious because it's like, oh man, what if my lungs start tightening up? Might need that thing. So, you know, just growing up with, uh, you know, that didn't grow up like a you know, sick, dying child or anything like that. But I, I knew my body had limitations, right? My body just didn't. There were times when it just felt like it wasn't functioning as well as it could have. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, diet, nutrition, becoming a way to manage your health and actually feel better, function better on an everyday basis was something that uh, totally changed my life. And that's a big part of why we do what we do, right? We help people with improving the health of themselves, their families, and their communities, right? That's, all, that's what we're all about. We're all about, about creating healthy bodies, healthy families, healthy food distribution networks locally. And um, yeah, that's why we got into homesteading ourselves. You know, I mean, it gets, you, you have full control over what, over the inputs in your body through actually producing your own food. You know exactly where that comes from. You know exactly what went into that. And you appreciate it a lot more when you produce it yourself. So that was kind of what got us into doing what we're doing now and, um, and why I've been so passionate about helping people to take back their health, helping people to take back uh, control over their body, control over their habits. And, um, and that's what, you know, as you know, a low carbohydrate and a, especially a carnivorous approach have been so incredible for so many people for taking back their health, both physical and mental and psychological. It's really great, Tristan. I, and like for the folks at home, like you're in a position where you are raising your own sheep and you've got a cow there as well and you're making your own raw milk and raw dairy and raw cheese and raw butter. What's, what's been the single greatest breakthrough health-wise that you guys have experienced since moving to Ecuador and, and adopting this lifestyle? I mean, it's just, it, there's so many, it's never like a linear journey. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think anybody, has, any, anybody who's doing like a full-on carnivorous diet would have ever expected that they would ever try it or then enjoy it Right. But, uh, you know, kind of things happen out of necessity, right? It really seems like things, uh, you know, as far as like, you know, trying a carnivorous diet, I've just had times on and off my whole life where my digestion just went way off. And I'm sure I could have gotten some kind of a, you know, I, I, I'm sure I could have gotten a clinical diagnosis of colitis or something like that if I was seeking that. Right. But from just knowing so many people who dealt with that, the clinical diagnosis, it basically just means nothing. It just means you're going to throw more drugs at it. You're going to throw more, uh, you know, uh, possibly deleterious treatments at it that your body might just reject. So I, um, you know, I was uh, always interested in doing things, of course, my own way, but also in a way that's not going to have negative side effects. Right. So I went through a period, um, man, it must've been like 
four years ago when my digestion was just off and on. I kept getting these like bacterial infections and just trying to figure out what's going on. And through talking to so many other people who had used the full on zero carb carnivore diet over the years, when I first heard about this, I was like, this is ridiculous. You know, I, I really enjoyed keto for body composition changes. I was able to put on quite a bit of muscle, lost a lot of fat using a ketogenic diet, but I still thought that the plants were, well, I still thought they were enjoyable. And I still thought that maybe you're getting some nutrients from them that you're not going to be getting from animals. But then talking to this guy, Andrew Scarborough, who had an inoperable brain tumor. He had a completely inoperable brain tumor, and he used a zero-carb, full-on carnivorous diet to keep that in remission for years. And um, so from talking to him and talking to other people who use an all-animal-based diet approach – you know, I kind of, first of all, got the confidence to say, okay, well, this is obviously not going to be dangerous, right? People have done this. People have done it long-term. Uh, but then this also might be something that would be beneficial, right? So, you know, removing fiber, removing a lot of the anti-nutrients, removing the plants that are unnecessary and might even be hindering our digestion and health. I essentially came to the conclusion that my body functions a heck of a lot better with either very, very limited or zero plant foods at all. And the more focused on animal foods I became, uh, the better I would feel, the less I would get recurring random symptoms that I wasn't able to isolate what the problem was. It's like, what did I eat something funny? Suddenly pooping 10 times this day. And then it goes back to normal a couple of days. It's like, what's going on here? That was just completely eliminated. Right. So it's like, I stick to the animal foods, which, um, you know, might sound boring, but there's so many that a lot of people can handle, right? Like I do great with, uh, you mentioned raw dairy, raw milk, cheeses, butter, um, animal foods, from ruminant animals, nose to tail, carnivore is what we you know teach. That's what we've we've got a book, the Carnivore Cookbook, where we show people how to make delicious and affordable nose to tail animal foods. And um, you know, there's such a variety of foods that I can include, and I can even there's a lot of fruits that I can handle really well. Um, I know there, there are a lot of plant foods that I can handle quite well, but I wouldn't want to base my diet primarily on those. I know what the essentials are and what my body really needs. And that's just animal foods. So that would be, I would say that's the most shocking and surprising thing that I've uh, kind of discovered on my, my, uh, my health journey is that not only is a, uh, you know, a plant-based diet most definitely not for me, and I would argue that it's not for anybody. Uh, when you look at the standard American diet right now, it's 70% plants by calories. Uh, but I was so surprised that not only was that not the answer, which is what we're mostly told in mainstream but an animal-based diet for me and many people like me, and I'm not saying everybody, but for many people and for myself, a fully animal-based diet results in um, major gains as far as health, physical performance, and uh, mental performance goes. Well, I was going to say, like, out of all the people that you've coached in however many years you've been doing this, has anyone had a negative long-term experience? I mean, that's... There are people who, who you I'm not talking, about, the, I'm not talking about keto term. flu or, you know, the transition symptoms. I'm talking about like, yeah, yeah. That's a good question, man. I mean, there's a lot of people who, who have short term symptoms that they don't like so much, right? You have short term adaptation period when you're adapting to a ketogenic diet or a carnivorous diet. As far as long term deleterious health effects to a carnivore diet, I've not seen any, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Right. I mean, it's like when you look when you're coaching clients and you work with a lot of people, some just drop off, right? I mean, you like you, you know, maybe 10, 15% of clients, you're not going to hear from them or get very good adherence from them. And you got to learn to accept that, right? Um, that's why you don't want to push people too far out of their comfort zone into a place where they're not ready to go. So you kind of understand what, uh, what a person's ready to handle, right? The average, the average person who's just trying to lose 100 pounds, right? the average American who's trying to lose 100 pounds, they don't need to do a full-on carnivorous diet. They might end up liking it after a little while. People who've got autoimmune conditions, issues with anxiety, right? especially with anxiety, um, things like arthritis, those people tend to excel and feel amazing instantly, right? So you see a lot of great long-term effects with them. But of course, I mean, there are many people who probably say, oh, you know, I did carnivore, I didn't enjoy it so much. Um, and then I went back to, to, uh, you know, straight keto, or I went back to an omnivorous diet that was mixed macros. And I mean, I've, I've never seen anybody have deleterious long-term effects from a carnivorous diet, but that doesn't mean they're not out there. That doesn't mean they're not out there, but I have not seen it. And I've seen quite the opposite. Well, I was just racking my brain then. I mean, I have, I've consumed a lot of information over the last four years, especially, and right. I attribute 
you know, the information I found on YouTube and originally with Chris Cresser being interviewed on Joe Rogan, like he opened my eyes to the link between mm. gluten intolerance and me being able to fix a, an incurable autoimmune disease in the form of good and come yeah. off medication that I've been on for 17 years. And then I watched Sean Baker's interview originally and I, like he's yeah. just eating meat. And I'm like, that's horseshit. Like what an idiot. <laughs> and then like next minute, like I'm finding myself down at the local fish market down here in South Melbourne getting the, the organic butcher to cut up raw calf liver <laughs> and sprinkling mm. it on raw oysters and smashing these oysters down in front of other people. <laughs> and, and the, like, you don't do that for show and for shock. You do it because it makes you feel like fucking Tony Stark and Iron Man. It's the greatest <laughs> thing ever. So I, I totally understand. But, I, you know, the, the dogma that, that we are constantly bombarded with you know, and a lot of people say, and you'll get this a lot, I'm guessing, but what about why, but plants are really important. What's your response to that? Yeah. Like what about fiber? What about phytonutrients? What about these things? You know, I mean, there, there, there's so many different ways you can, you know, so many different angles of attack you can take on that. And fiber is a major argument, right? Well, what about fiber? How are you going to poop without fiber? Right. And I think the only, one of the best ways to show people, especially if they're really into the scientific literature and documenting things, um, uh, through, through you know scientific studies, if you show them the only study, the only double uh, double blind controlled study on constipation and fiber that's out there, if uh, you send them to this study, if they search, go on, uh, if you go on PubMed, search PubMed fiber constipation study, idiopathic constipation study, you'll see a study about putting I think it was sixty three patients on either a zero fiber diet, moderate fiber diet, or a high fiber diet. And they weeded out the people who had intestinal blockages and stuff like that. And they wanted people who had chronic constipation, right? Really bad chronic constipation. They found that the people on the high fiber diet still had the same symptoms, still had an average bowel movement. I think it was like once every five days or something ridiculous like that. The moderate fiber diet had very, very little change from the baseline. And the zero fiber diet, they had all of them complete remission of their symptoms of constipation, right? So, I mean, it's, it, it's that study alone kind of shows that fiber not only is not the thing that allows us to poo, but for people who have constipation and have chronic constipation, got total relief from it from removing the fiber from the diet. Fiber is indigestible. We don't need fiber. Now, people will argue, oh, you need fiber for your gut microbiome. These gut microbes need to eat this indigestible material. And they're going to turn this into uh, good, uh, beneficial compounds in the body, butyrate and whatnot. But we actually do not require any fiber in order for our gut bacteria to function, right? There are plenty of gut bacteria that break down fat. There are plenty of gut bacteria that break down protein. And there's so much dogma around this, uh, you know, the gut microbiome needs a lot of fiber. It's so deeply ingrained and the assumptions need to be questioned. So, I mean, it's... You know, just because you have an association between certain beneficial, or so-called beneficial gut bacteria being present and good health outcomes, that doesn't mean that those beneficial, so-called beneficial gut bacteria are actually causing this, right? Causation and correlation are not the same. Um, so there's actually, you know, for people who are concerned about their gut microbiome, for people who do testing on it using like Ubiome, there's a company called Ubiome where you can get a comprehensive gut microbiota test. And there's a guy, what is this guy's name? I always forget his name. Let me, uh, let me get his name real quick. Um, Bart K. Paul Saladino. Adam Viscovich. There we go. I always forget <laughs> his name. It's a weird name. Adam Viscovich on Twitter. Great name. Look at Adam Viscovich on Twitter. He's got some great posts on testing his gut microbiome on a plant-based vegan diet and on a full-on carnivorous diet. When he was on this plant-based vegan diet, I think he said he was in the uh, – third percentile i'm pulling up the uh, the numbers right now there we go so when he first tested his vegan gut diversity was in the third percentile after being carnivore for a week it jumped to the 81st percentile in microbial diversity right and after a year of having zero fiber it was the 92nd percentile in microbiota diversity so first of all it's not we shouldn't assume that a more diverse and robust microbiome is always going to be beneficial for our health. That is an assumption that may be faulty, but even if you do believe that 
here's a guy that's showing you that he went from the third percentile to the 92nd percentile, zero fiber diet, no fiber for a whole year, nothing but animal foods, right? So you've got that. Um, one of the other things that people talk about with what you need plants for is carbohydrates. I say, well, you need carbohydrates. Plants are the only source of carbohydrate, right? We've got essential fatty acids. You've got essential amino acids that you need to consume dietarily. Your body cannot synthesize these. There's no such thing as essential carbohydrates. Absolutely no such thing. Essential carbohydrates do not exist. So we do not need to consume carbohydrate. Your body can actually create the glucose that it requires from both protein and fat, right? The backbone of fatty acid is glycerol. You can, you can make uh, glycogen from that glycerol. You can actually make and refill your glycogen stores from turning protein into glucose. Your body does this through a process called gluconeogenesis. And if it weren't for this process, we wouldn't be alive. We would need a constant IV glucose drip at all times. Right? So those are some of the most common arguments. Say, oh, you need plants for this or that. Well, there's no nutrient in plants that you can, uh, that you require, that you can't get from animal foods. Right? There's absolutely nothing in plants that you require that you cannot get from animal foods. In fact, you cannot live on a diet of only plants with no animal foods unless it is heavily supplemented. And I would argue that even then, it's going to be very, very difficult to get all the nutrients you require because of the bioavailability in those supplements and in plant foods is very low but you can get everything you need you can live off of all animal foods with no supplements at all with zero supplements you have to take b12 or zinc or dha like you do if you take a, if you're on a vegan diet you don't have to take any supplements you get everything you need from nothing but animal foods and this has been proven in a laboratory setting right? one of the only Studies on this was done in 1930, I think it was 1932, in Bellevue Hospital with this guy called um, called Stephenson, Wilhelm or Stephenson. He wrote a book called The Fat of the Land, which I highly recommend anybody who's interested in carnivorous diets look into. This was it's one of the book. things that actually convinced me that it was most definitely safe to do an all-meat, all-animal foods diet. This as well as um, uh, Weston A. Price's book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. But they did a study where he was in the Bellevue Hospital under strict observation for a whole year. Uh, Stephenson and his partner, another Arctic explorer, Anderson, were both observed for a whole year on a zero-carb, all-animal food-based diet, and they had remarkably unremarkable results. There were nothing wrong with them. They were both totally healthy. Uh, in fact, both of their gingivitis improved dramatically over this year and, uh, and with no negative health consequences to their kidneys. Uh, all their blood markers were measured, and uh, and this is the uh, the Bellevue experiment with Stephenson and Anderson on an all animal based diet. It is safe to live without animal foods. It is very risky, and potentially very dangerous to live without any animal foods. Well, amen, brother. I mean, I I'm a I'm a distance runner, and I've been experimenting with some of these. Uh, like, I'll go periods where I go just like lion diet. So I'm just doing meat and water. And I did a period, I did a month recently and I dropped eight kilos and 5% body fat. And I was already in reasonable nick because I wanted to get lighter because I want to try and knock off a sub three hour marathon. Now I'm 40 next month and I only, <laughs> I only started running two years ago, right? And I've run a couple of hundred uh, K ultra marathons and, and I did use uh, carbohydrates during those, but that's, that's another kettle of fish, I think, when you're going that long. But I was able to do a 30-kilometer 30, 30 run recently. I'd gone six days with zero carb, like nothing. Yeah. And I did it totally fasted. I didn't even – I took on some electrolyte in the form of uh, magnesium, potassium, sodium with a mouthful of water on the run. And I averaged four-minute 45 pace uh, in kilometers, which I'm not sure that trans like – maybe low sevens and miles or something. It's a good clip. It's a good clip. Yeah. And the thing that I noticed was that uh, I wasn't super hungry. I started that at about 7.30 in the morning. Uh, I didn't eat till about three or four o'clock. And all I had was like a dozen raw oysters, really good quality ones down here. We're very close to Tasmania and really, really high quality nutritional fucking solid and then, and then ate about two kilos of meat the next day. And my recovery was so good that I went for a run again on the Monday. So that was Sunday. And normally after two running Two kilos that, of meat the next day. Yeah, yeah. 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 
Over the course of about four hours. Yeah. And so I just eat when I'm hungry. And and I I come from a background of in my mid-30s, breaking down a lot, doing a lot of soft tissue injuries. And, and like I still get muscle soreness from, of course you would, right? But I, my bounce back ability is through the roof. And I think it's largely to do the fact that I've removed all the inflammatory response by the, you know, the, any refined carbohydrate gels or any of that stuff. I do take on a bit of raw honey now and I've been eating it with nice. the honeycomb as well, which is yeah. fucking delicious by the way. And I think has helped <laughs> yeah, fill, out, fill out the stool samples because when I was a baby, I think my mother's eyebrows are still growing back from when she used to change my nappies. They were so terrible and my digestion was garbage until I went carnivore. Now I'll freeze dry one and, and send it to anyone who wants and it doesn't even really smell. I'm literally saying my shit doesn't stink. Shit does not stink. No, that's, <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard a few people say that. I also think my shit doesn't stink. But <laughs> I think my wife, my wife disagrees. <laughs> that's amazing. So, yeah, that's cool, though. I also use, I think honey is a great source of animal-based carbohydrates, right? You don't need carbohydrates, but you can get carbs without fiber and without any of the plant toxins. Honey is very easily digestible for a lot of people. Raw milk per liter, you got about 50 grams of carbs there. So that's another one that a lot of athletes might want to play with. Uh, and, and pro tip, if you mix raw milk and raw honey, it's freaking amazing. Um, so you yeah, can make it into an ice cream. Yeah. 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 We've got an ice cream recipe in our, in our cookbook with uh, raw cream and honey. It's a good one. We'll put the link for the book down below. Cause I've, I've seen some of the recipes and they're delicious and it's far from boring. The only challenge we have here in the state of Victoria is that raw milk is illegal. Even they won't even sell bath milk. Um, oh, shoot. Yeah, I forgot about that. You're in Australia. Yeah. Sorry for teasing you about that. No, no. Well, you can get it in <laughs> Queensland, which um, I have eliminated dairy only in the last couple of months, and I found yeah. the processed stuff, I'm better without it, and I was able to yeah, drop some I, extra I won't weight. Yeah, I pasteurized dairy either. Yeah. I think it's a good move to avoid the pasteurized dairy. But the, um, the reason why it was banned was a mother or a, or a guardian gave a child who was like in advanced – uh, cancer treatment, like deep in chemotherapy, raw dairy, and then they got a bacterial infection and it finished them off, which is terrible. But, you know, to ban something that's actually so fucking beneficial off the back of that is just irresponsible. And this is unfortunately the, the type of environment that we are subject to, and it's been amplified with what's been going on in the world recently, and civil liberties sort of seem like they're going the way of the bloody dingo, mate. That's the old normal, man. We don't need those anymore. The new normal, we, we don't need any rights. <laughs> no, it's ridiculous. I think the, uh, the, the making, the, the um, demonization of raw milk is insane, right? So it's like, I mean, it's terrible that a kid, you know, got a bacterial infection while in chemotherapy, but this kid get a bacterial infection because he drank raw milk or did he get it because he was taking literal poison that's designed to kill you, chemotherapy that kills your cells and destroys you. Um, you know, I mean, and, and how do we know that he actually got it from, how do we know that the milk was the source? How do we know that this wasn't some environmental bacterial infection that he was supposed to, uh, that that's, it's a, what a terrible situation in, uh, Canada. It's also really difficult to get raw milk. Uh, I think the only way to do it in some places is to raise it yourself, but yeah, it's, uh, it's not necessary for everyone to have. I wouldn't go for, I wouldn't drink pasteurized milk, um, I don't know. I mean, if I had to, like, if that was all that was around, then yeah. hypothetically, that's the only food I could get. Oh, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna starve myself because I, you know, that I won't drink pasteurized milk ever, or I won't ever eat bread. But it's like, you know, I, if I got a choice, I'm not gonna be eating the pasteurized milk. I would only eat the raw milk, and I would, uh, you know, choose to, if I did want some carbohydrates, just some raw honey. Um, yeah, even you know, with with cheeses, with even with the, when the dairy, when the cheese is pasteurized, they're still adding back in cultures and fermenting it. So I think a lot of people do fine with cheese that's uh, pasteurized. I don't think you have to get super dogmatic about it with cheese. Uh, and cheese is always delicious. So um, yeah, if you're trying to gain weight, trying to add calories in, uh, dairy can be useful. Honey can be great, and um, cheese is something that's hyper palatable, and everybody can overeat on cheese. So if you're, if you're having trouble maintaining weight or gaining weight when uh, trying to you know, fix an autoimmune condition using a carnivorous approach, those are viable options for a lot of people if they're able to handle them. And what about your kids? What ages are your children, by the way? We've got uh, an eight-year-old. Our daughter's eight, and our son is four. 
And so what do they eat? Actually, Ryder's almost four. He'll be four in September. They eat everything we eat, and they eat more fruits and stuff like that, right? So they eat basically, I mean, they love animal foods, loads of animal foods, and then they, they do a ton of cheese. They love dairy, right? Like uh, our son Ryder, he had probably, like, I think he had a whole liter of milk yesterday. <laughs> I think he had, he had about three liters worth of dairy, including the cheese, right? Like uh, he, he had so much dairy yesterday. It was ridiculous. Lots of meat. Uh, they like eggs. They love fruit. And, um, you know, they eat the odd pastry thrown in there every once in a while. And they, when they feel like it, we don't, uh, we don't shelter them from everything, but they, you know, they don't have candy. They don't usually have any grains and, uh, some tubers. They like bananas, squash. They actually really enjoy vegetables too. They like broccoli and stuff, which I don't really care about broccoli or uh, <laughs> any of these vegetables anymore, but they like those. That's what's funny. So we'll get, we'll get broccoli and cauliflower for them. Uh, yeah, they, they have a pretty varied diet. They have, they have a more variety diet. They have way more variety than, than I keep in my diet. And that's just because they enjoy it. Right. Like I don't, um, yeah, you know, I don't think there's anything necessary in broccoli, but it's like if my kids want broccoli with some butter on it and some salt, like they're going to get it. So, yeah, we, we keep them on a, a whole foods diet that's animal-based with loads of plant foods, no skimping on the fruit, and they love honey as well. And we, have, so we have some bees, so we have our own honey we'll be harvesting again soon. So. That sounds pretty good, and I think where you are as well, like the quality of the produce is going to be, I'm assuming, pretty organic, Pretty non-sprayed, pretty natural. Depends. Depends. You know, it's actually like with corn, it's really hard to get good organic corn. So you got to know where you're getting it from. But I've got like, I, mean, I just picked up, we don't eat corn, but you know, to feed the chickens and stuff, right? Like to feed animals, you use grain, right? So we've got some corn growing in our yard right now. Uh, I've got some corn growing down below. But then I got like, I just bought... Uh, 10 sacks, I bought a thousand pounds actually. It was 10 sacks of 10 100 pound sacks of corn from a neighbor that lives the valley over, one valley over, and he has good quality all organic corn. But things like bananas and stuff, you can get locally, nobody's spraying those. But like the mass produced bananas that are being exported, you know, the bananas that, uh, you know, the, the vegan activists who are telling us that we need to give up our animal foods because they're so, so, supposedly destroying the planet. Those bananas that are grown in Ecuador, I mean, they're atrocious. I mean, they have to put plastic bags on them to protect them from the chemicals that they spray from airplanes over the top of them to keep off birds and insects and whatnot. And uh, you know, they, they dip them, you do them like a, like a chemical dip when you pull them out so that when the plantains and bananas get to the country that they're going to, well, however many weeks down the line after they're exported, so they look yellow and clean and sterile. So, I mean, there's, it's kind of atrocious how a lot of the produce is grown and there's tons of, uh, the GMO thing was actually when we came here in 2010, part of why we wanted to come here was in the constitution of Ecuador, uh, there was a ban on transgenic, transgenicos, which, uh, GMO foods, right? No GMOs in the constitution. Of course, uh, you know, that, that's changed over the years. Lots of things have changed since we got here. So now the GMOs are creeping in the Monsanto execs have, have made their way in and, um, yeah, pesticide use is, is very rampant in the third world in, uh, South America. The people are told by the, um, by the veterinarians they're who are told by the pharmaceutical reps and the big ag reps that all these things are super safe and you just spray them on your crops. You're going to get more yield and whatnot. It's not really true, but, um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of pesticide use, but we, carefully source things and we produce them ourselves and we get them from our neighbors and we get them from people who we know produce really good stuff. So it, yes and no, <laughs> that's, there is great quality. If you know how to find it, just like in anywhere else in the world, right? I wish there was a place where you could go where it's like, everyone's doing organic. There's no, uh, no one's using pesticides, but man, I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, I would love if somebody would tell me where that is because I haven't found it. Yeah, well, I think the, uh, you know, even here, when you talk about organic, I mean, organic exploded at least a decade ago, and, and but it's, it's now been bastardized with certain things, and particularly eggs are a real challenge to find properly pastured eggs because they've got laws yeah. over here in place that, and, you know, we go through a lot of droughts in Australia, obviously, and yeah. we're in a, dra a drought time that they're allowed to feed them GMO feed and still call them organic. 
And the, mm-hmm. the thing about if you've got an intolerance to soy or, you know, whatever it is, it's passed through into the egg and it doesn't taste as good. And I've, yeah. I've found that um, I've been able to get some pretty good pasted eggs that are just eating the worms and bugs and, you know, they look after them really well and you pay a premium and, you know, probably between 10 to $12 a dozen, like a dollar an egg almost, but given food as a medicine. And then with regards to the spraying and that side of thing, this is the really great thing about eating animal protein is that animals are far better equipped at being able to chelate a lot of the external toxins that they take in yeah. versus plants because plants can't do it. So not only are you you know, avoiding a lot more of the pesticides by cutting out plants and everything else. Um, you know, like you, you're doing a favour by voting with your feet. So I'm a massive fan and, you know, greatly respect what you're doing over there as well, Tristan. It's, it's really impressive, man. Thanks, man. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really, it is a difficulty. Sourcing good quality foods can be really hard. I think that's why a lot of people are moving towards homesteading. A lot of people are supporting local producers and making relationships with their local farmers. And if you know where your food comes from, you know how it's produced, you really appreciate it a lot more, right? Like I don't mind paying more for good quality food because I know where it comes from. I know what goes into it. And I know how hard it is to produce good food, especially now. I mean, poor, uh, uh, poor, uh, how do you, how do I say it? Um, you know, really bad practices are basically subsidized globally right now. Right. I mean, it's, you know, the grain subsidies are huge. So the GMO subsidy basically allows, uh, you know, rampant use of GMOs and makes it uh, standard to use you know, loads of pesticides, herbicides and Roundup. And, you know, these things are, are awful for our gut and they're awful for the soil. And uh, they're really, you know, in the long term, it really screws us all over when we support this type of stuff, because, yeah, sure, you can buy, you know, the uh, pesticide fortified the low quality food for cheaper. You can buy it for a lot cheaper, but long-term it is going to raise the price of food and it's going to choke us out from being able to get quality foods. If we don't support local producers, because, um, well, first of all, local producers get squeezed out, right? So when you look at beef production, right in the U S beef production, there are less cattle ranchers than there have been in a long time. Since the 70s, the amount of cattle ranchers has decreased dramatically. The amount of head of cattle, the amount of cows in the United States has decreased dramatically. But the amount of beef produced has gone up. Now they say, now the big ag reps, they'll say, well, this is because efficiency. This is great. We have a more efficient production. But it's not so simple. Right, that efficiency comes at a cost, right? I mean, there's loads of chemical fertilizers being used to raise these crops. Um, they're, they're creating dead zones in the ocean when all this manure that's got all this toxic um, you know, GMO feed is washing into it. It's not regenerating the soil. The manure is not getting put back in the soil. It's washing out into the watershed. And this creates situations long-term where cattle, they can get demonized. Then they get uh, taxed. Ultimately, we're seeing a lot of uh, talk about taxing meat and putting a sin tax on meat. You know, the UN has been talking about this. A lot of vegan activists are on board with this. They think this is just great. And, um, you know, even the big producers in the U S when you look at meat, the meat packing industry, right? So there's four major meat packer companies. You've got JBS, Cargill, um, uh, national beef and Tyson foods, right? They run the entire U S beef slaughter and, uh, the, uh, processing facility market in the United States. And this creates a bottleneck, right? So you've got family ranchers and farmers who raise the cattle, then they send it off to get slaughtered and it has to be slaughtered in a USDA facility if it's going to be transported across state lines. So in the States, this bottleneck is created by these four major corporations. And now what we see is a lot of them have been shutting down their production facilities. So they're shutting down production because of uh, coronavirus tests that are being passed out. So these, uh, the workers are testing positive and they're shutting down these facilities, which is creating an artificial shortage in the meat supply in the U S there's no real shortage of meat. The short, the, uh, the shortage is just being caused by the consolidated system of distribution and the consolidated meat packing industry in the United States. 
So this ends up making higher prices for meat for everybody because people have been supporting this subsidized by the government industrial agriculture system. This has resulted in higher prices to the consumer. The producers of the beef, the ranchers, get less per pound of beef. Right? They get less per head of cattle when they sell them to be slaughtered. And we pay more, but guess who makes a bunch of money? the meat packers and the grocery stores who are jacking the prices up. So when you cut out the middlemen and you go straight to the farmer, then and only then are you going to be supporting yourself long-term with having a solid um, line of communication with the people who produce your food, having good, robust, decentralized distribution of food in your local area. Uh, and also you're going to be having good food, good quality food, especially if you're getting, uh, you know, pastured animals that are regeneratively produced. Uh, this actually helps to sequester carbon in the soil. This helps to hold water in the soil, right? And it does so much benefit. It benefits so much our land, our soil quality, and our long-term food security when we do decide to vote with our dollars, to vote with our forks, and to, and to go for locally produced food or even get involved in food production ourselves. So this is, um, this is why I think it is so important, just like you said, to, uh, to be supporting local producers and looking at food quality rather than just the price. Yeah, and look, it can sound a little bit doom and gloom, but if you were in charge of everything, all right, just imagine this for a second. If you had, if you could wave a wand and do anything, what would you do? If I was in charge of everything, the world, and you could wave a wand and go, "Here's how we're going to fix everything." All right. Well, I mean, that's obviously a hypothetical because, uh, but uh, I mean, as, as far as the food production, right? Uh, I would get more. I would get people to support local food producers. I would get people to have their own backyard chickens. I think Joel Salatin said that if just 30% of people in suburban and rural America had backyard chickens, they would completely de eliminate the need for um, the, the industrial egg system in the United States. So just 30% of people having backyard chickens, eating their compost, eating their food waste, that would eliminate the chicken production agricultural system in the u.s so i think people i would really like to see more people producing their own food more people raising ruminant animals regeneratively uh, i'd like to see the subsidies for corn wheat soy and all these gmos completely uh, uh, eliminated shoot i'd like all these gmos to be abolished and um yeah i mean uh, the, the the list goes on but there, there's where i'd start as far as the end of the food production system goes local food production and supporting local producers, more people producing their own food, having backyard chickens, and uh, and the elimination of all this GMO crap. I mean, this would not only create more jobs because more people would be producing food. Yes, the price of food may go up, right? But it would be a more healthful situation. The price of healthcare for most people would decrease dramatically. And um, so, yeah, that that would be a few steps that are feasible that I would take. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, it's a, it's look, I've thrown you under the bus there, Tristan, but I, I, yeah, it's a great question to think about because for me, you know, it, it's been, it's been four years since I stopped drinking and about mm -hmm. three and a half since I got my health sorted. And then it's been two years since I've started pretty much an exclusively carnivorous diet. And my productivity in the last two years, I've done more and achieved more proper beneficial stuff to society in the last two years than I had in the previous 38. And this is why I'm super passionate about feeling good and looking good because what people don't realize is that when you are productive, then you're getting that positive feedback loop and you're nicer to people because you're happier and your body's functioning how we've fucking evolved to, right? That your world and your experience is a much, much better place. And then if you amplify that across seven and a half billion people, like, it, it's a utopia, right? And it is a utopia at the moment. We're in danger, I think, of heading down a, pl a place that's potentially irreversible if we don't do something about it soon. And, uh, you know, we had a guest on the show recently, uh, Diane McGrath, who's a Mars One uh, astronaut candidate, right? She's down to the last 100 globally to go to Mars one way in about eight or nine years. She's a, she's a carnival. She's doing it to, uh, which, you know, and they won't be able to grow any beef on Mars. So they're, they're hoping maybe the 3D printing might be an option there. But 
Um, I wouldn't hold my breath, but you know, she's doing it to try and build bone density and she's been doing these, a lot of these biohacking self-experimentation. She's put on a bunch of bone. Um, you know, she's a 50 year old woman who's, you know, perimenopausal and is putting on bone density, you know, like where it's, which is virtually impossible. And, and I've put on eight kilos of lean in the last two years, eight kilos through DEXA scans and biometric scans and half a kilo of skeletal bone density. And I'm not a gym user. I have been at the gym, but I'm mainly a runner and I do body weight stuff doing a catabolic exercise. Yeah. So anything's possible. Anything's possible. Yeah, man, no, it's incredible. I think uh, when, we, when we start to focus on our health and we look at diet and we start to take control of it, we, uh, we realize we have a lot more control over our health than we once believed, right? It's not like we're just, uh, you know, billiard balls bouncing around randomly and it's just, oh, no, I got, check it out, I got, I got the diabetes and I got 100 pounds overweight. I guess I just, I got the, I got the wrong genes with that roll of the dice, right? I should have you know, I shouldn't have rolled the dice at that time. And that's not how it is, right? We have control. We have control over our blood glucose levels. We can control our hunger levels. We can control, uh, you know, our immune system. We can tap into this and we can take charge of it. And we can take the reins of how our body functions. And, uh, and that, is, that is our right as human beings to take control of our health, to take back the health of ourselves, of our families and our communities. And by making the right choices dietarily, we can do all of that. And we can inspire people around us and get them stoked on it as well. And, uh, and that's, that's what I'm all about, man. I'm, I'm, glad you're, uh, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. It's cool to hear that. I mean, I, I cannot relate to running marathons. I, I never wanted to run more than a mile. I remember doing the mile, the mile in like high school in, uh, in PE class or like you know, playing, playing soccer. I, I used to love I, – I love like you know, football games, soccer games. We call it soccer in the U.S. Uh, I love like the actual games. But man, going to practice and just running laps around the field, I hated it. I hated it. So I, uh, yeah, man, you're you're a true masochist with those uh, <laughs> those marathons, dude. It's my it's my catharsis. Like it's my uh, it's my meditation. And I I've gotten to a point now where I've gotten good at it, and I so I really enjoy it and and pushing my body to extremes, you know, because it responds so beautifully back. And I feel, you know, I want to get to a point where I'm eventually running bare feet as well. Um, I'm going full, full primal, you know, and it's, it's what kind of shoes do you use now? Do you use like a minimalist shoe or are you kind of minimalizing the the footwear or how do you do that? Yeah. I'm sort of, I'm rotating a regular pair of running shoes with the Vibram or the Vibram toe shoes. Um, I was probably carrying a little bit too much weight to go longer distances in the, in the really thin minimalism shoes. Um, so there's a transition period and because I'm such an impatient bastard, I'll, uh, you know, I should just take a year off and just run in them and build up, but I, I'm just alternating back and forth. So, but the more, particularly when I removed dairy out of my diet, um, I found that the, my calves, which were very defined have, uh, smoothed the edges on them mm-hmm. alongside some remedial massage and I'm not getting as much, um, soreness there anymore. So it's, it's a constant, uh, experiment, self-experiment. I've been tracking all my blood work and, you know, and I'm, and my GP high five me and, uh, you know, like I'm in a good place. So, um, I am very respectful of your time. I know you run a very, very successful YouTube channel and you do some uh, amazing coaching for people that are interested in getting in touch um, we'll have all the details below, Tristan, but what sort of coaching can you help people with just really quickly before we wrap this up? Uh, well, I mean, we, we started out doing coaching in uh, 2014, uh, Jessica and myself, with uh, helping people to lose body fat, helping people to recomposition their body to take back their health. Uh, we were one of the first kind of promoters of ketogenic diet back in the day when this started becoming uh, more well-known on the internet. So we've, uh, we've been around for a while and uh, we've been coaching people in low-carbohydrate diets, ketogenic and carnivorous diets for about six years now. Uh, we run a private members forum where we do weekly coaching calls in there. So if you don't want, you know, a lot of people come to us for private coaching, but some people just want to uh, a more affordable way of doing it. We've got a private members forum. We jump on with weekly coaching calls in there. So you can find that at primaledgehealth.com. We run a YouTube channel as well called Primal Edge Health. 
And I'm um, also uh, do some Instagram. I'm on Twitter, Tristan and Haggard on Twitter. And uh, yeah, man, uh, the, appreciate you having me on. You know, back back to the the minimalist shoes. Just just a thought. I do you like the toe, the feeling of the virums on your toes? Because I freaking hate those. Oh, you know, it's more getting them on, which is the the challenge. Uh, once they're on, I'm but okay. they get like they like weeds will get stuck in between your toes and stuff. There are some Merrill shoes that I find there's some minimalist Merrill shoes and some minimalist shoes that don't have the toes that I think are better than the Byron five. Tell me, tell me. I got my pen and paper. Definitely. There you go. There you go. So uh, one of my favorite ones, well, for, if you do a lot of hiking, like trail running and stuff, the, uh, the Merrill trail glove four is pretty good. Now it's not that minimalist. It's got kind of a thick sole. Right, it's kind of a thick sole. It's kind of comparable to those Vibram, like the the ones with the more more tread on them. But then there's also the Vapor Glove. The Merrill Vapor Glove is a little bit thinner. Those are great. I really enjoy those, Um, and I I think those are better than the Merrill Vibram Five Fingers. Just an opinion, right? But but yeah, because here there's a lot of weeds everywhere, and most of them like my uh, you know I'm hiking and stuff. It's up in the mountains, and those things that get stuck in between your toes all the time. I got annoyed with that. They're hard to put on. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, so, so I, I do really like the, uh, the Merrill um, glove series and there's some good ones in there. So check those out. No, I appreciate that, man. Well, it's interesting. My, my toes, which were kind of cramped up like this for a long time, <laughs> yeah. since I've been running, they've splayed out and I've uh-huh. developed mus- muscular feet. Uh, which makes sense because I'm using all the many muscles in my feet, which is really fascinating. But I'll check those out, man, because putting on the, the, you know, they say no glove, no love. Um, They're a bit challenging at times. So anything with no toes would be awesome. Um, I'm pretty keen to uh, let you go. Tristan, you've been a a wonderful guest. Uh, Primal Edge uh, Health is the the website. And uh, I'll put all the information below for the YouTube. For anyone listening, it'll be in the bio section as well. Tristan Haggard, everybody. Bon voyage, amigo. It's been nice meeting you, man. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training where I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.